Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and elections in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, news editor for The Dorchester Reporter. And I'm Steve Gazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. Okay, so Steve, I know I promised everyone that we'd leave the tea alone, but it's so bad. Yeah, it's you so said, bad. You said that we weren't going to do another tea segment until everything was fully funded and running on time, and yet here we are. I just, it's, I think they might be haunted now. Like, I think it might be ghosts at this point. So today, uh, the blue line, it's now the blue line's turn. So mm-hmm. when we last gathered together, the green line had derailed, and then the red line had derailed. And then there was a bus on fire. The bus was on fire. The blue line tracks were on fire. The orange line was a mess. Today... It was the blue line. Yeah, there was a power issue around government centers. So then the blue line had a problem and a train that actually had a WBUR reporter on it had to be evacuated. And so everyone's just milling outside the stations. Whole mess. uh, Lyft and Uber prices are once again just an unreal, unreal high and just kind of makes me uncomfortable in general that it should cost anyone like 90 bucks to get like five minutes away. But uh, actually, there is a little bit of news around the MBTA, which is why I am allowing us to talk about it for even this brief amount of time. Thank you, Jen. <laughs> is uh, Mayor Walsh today actually sent a letter to Stephanie Pollack, the transportation secretary, saying that he wants to push for a few sort of concrete improvements um, for red line service, which of course is still lagging because of ripple effects from the derailment. So he wants more service on the Fairmount commuter rail line, and he wants people to be able to use their Charlie cards to ride this commuter rail line that is all inside of Boston, and then also wanted uh, more of the South Shore Limited that was running temporarily to sort of bolster the red line service. And then on top of that, he wants more service on the red line for off-peak hours, which as he notes, the T is doing for the orange line because they want people to get to the casino. So you might as well put it on the red line where people need it to get to their lives. Yeah, all interesting stuff. The other thing that caught my eye was that he described the MBTA much differently than he has in conversations with reporters before. Yes, he was no longer saying that we were kind of exaggerating about the general state of it, which uh, I hear at one point might have been perfectly fine. How much of a concern is the transportation infrastructure here? Every day people complain about traffic and complain about the MBTA. How much of that is concern considering? It's really not. I mean, I think every city in America has the same issue. I mean, we go to New York City and traffic in New York's far worse than here. And, you know, most days the MBTA is reliable here. Um, You know, it's just that when something happens, it gets gets spotlighted by the press so bad that it's like, you know, it makes it sound like it's crumbling. But now... He is also on board the T needs some serious help, particularly the lions going through the middle of his home neighborhood. So Yeah, he actually also literally got on board when he yeah. uh, rode the bus uh, a week or so ago. Now he got on a, got on the 57 bus to check out some uh, dedicated bus lanes that had been added for that route. Which means he got to honestly answer the survey that the Globe did about MBTA ridership, which asked, what is the last time you've been on the T? And he says, Friday. Yeah, this is an interesting one that's going to come out, I would imagine, sometime in the next next little while, which is that the Boston Globe has surveyed public officials asking them about their own commutes and their own use of the MBTA um, and just sort of how often they use it, when the last time they used it was, how they generally commute, and a few other things. Mayor Marty Walsh put his answers out ahead of time, which probably, as a pollster, would drive me crazy. <laughs> respondents just like logged onto Twitter and like <laughs> answered my polls. They on scooped them. you. But uh, yeah, Exactly. Yeah, he scooped the Boston Globe. Um, but anyway, he had just been on a bus, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps by design. So we could say, hey, look, I just rode the bus. But that poll will be interesting to see, you know, what other public officials have to say about the MBTA. Yeah, so I'm sure we'll talk about that in the future. But um, how about we uh, move straight on to a 
this week in the president gets into a racist fight with some local Congress people segment. Yes, unfortunately, that is the place where we find ourselves. President Donald Trump has taken on four freshman members of Congress. One of them, our own Ayanna Presley, from right here in Boston. Right. So he told the four Congresswomen of color to, quote, go back to the crime-infested places from which they came if they didn't like America. And uh, this is I mean, I, I don't know why we always sort of have the the back and forth about whether or not to call something racist. This was, you know, a hallmark of racist comments toward people of color is if you say go back where you came from, you're clearly making a comment based on their skin tone, their ethnicity. So that out of the way, I would actually make a note as well uh, that it's of a piece more with the president's approach to communities of color in general and immigrants and vulnerable populations. So that's really kind of why it's got my goat, not just the overt issues there. So if you have a mindset that assumes people of color aren't Americans or aren't entitled to the full respect and legal safeguarding from this country, that is how you actually get to birtherism and fighting to remove immigrant protections, which we're going to talk about a little bit later on this podcast, and also the issues with the conditions around the border. So the response itself, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, uh, Ilhan Omar, and of course, Ayanna Presley had a press conference where they said, of course, this is appalling and abhorrent and, of course, people of color, young people of color, you have a place in this country. But then uh, Ayanna Presley uh, had an interesting response, which she basically said, don't take the bait on the tweets, focus on the actual damage that Donald Trump is doing. So that was an interesting reaction as well. And Ayanna Presley, of course, is it represents the most diverse district in Massachusetts and represents one of the more diverse districts in the country. Um, also within her district, you know, some of the state Senate and state legislative districts are also the most diverse districts here in Massachusetts. Uh, Jen, your paper actually covers some of these districts. So tell us a bit more about what the reaction has been, what the sentiment has been locally about this confrontation. Well, so one of the things to always keep in mind, especially in these situations, is that Ayanna Presley is not just a more diverse member of Congress than the Massachusetts 7th has ever put forward. She represents a seat that's populated by some of the most vulnerable groups in the entire state. It's very immigrant heavy. There's lots of people of color. So when we're talking about the president's policies and the people who are basically getting a direct message from the president of the United States that they shouldn't be here or they should be staying in some sort of enclaves, that's Presley's constituency. So that, or it at least is part of Presley's constituency. So, so when she's talking about her role here, it's not just in terms of defending the idea of don't say this thing to Congresswomen of color. It is also saying, I came into this office to serve these specific communities that have these specific concerns about their safety and their representation in the government that's supposed to take care of them. So that is always a bit of a complicated a, a complicated thing to keep in mind at the same time, is it's not just that he was personally attacking um, this congresswoman, it's that his remarks are almost laser-focused in on a district that is very, very concerned about ICE raids, that is very, very concerned about systemic disenfranchisement. And so that's one of the things that swept Presley into office. And so it's one of the things now that she's in a position to remind people still need to be addressed. Gun violence, for instance, is still a very big problem, even though when it's on the national level, it tends to be talked about in terms of 
people arguing why violence is concentrated around communities of color rather than what to do about it. So all of these conversations are very much coming to a head in the least sophisticated way possible when the president decides to weigh in on it. But it's it's worth a reminder that this district is particularly impacted. So in a way, it's a, people talk about Trump's tweets being a distraction and typically frame it in, in terms of a distraction from other things that he doesn't necessarily want people to focus on about his own you know actions or his own politics. But um, I think it's it's useful for to hear that reminder from that you just gave and that Ayanna Presley has given that focusing on this and having all of the con- political conversation be about this and about you know these four members of Congress and uh, racist tweets and so forth does mean that other issues necessarily get less attention and less progress is made on them. But before we leave this, one other note, sort of locally, is that it's a bit ironic in a way because Ayanna Presley, you know, when she ran against Capuano, didn't really run from the left. You know, her challenge was a bit different. Her positioning as far as whether she's a member of the establishment was a bit different. You know, a lot of the conflict among Democrats that led to this was sort of pitting the iconoclasts, I guess, against the traditionalists. And throughout her career, Presley hasn't always been the iconoclast. You know, she was a staffer for John Kerry. She's been in the political establishment. She was a Boston city councilor, then a member of Congress. Um, so just interesting to see among the many things that are that I think are inaccurate about this is that she's just she's been in a different place than than um, I think a lot of the national media is sort of positioning her. Yeah, I think that uh, an important thing to keep in mind when we're talking about this as well, though, is that through her entire career, she's very much made both her identity and her experience central to her pitch in a lot of ways and how she actually proposed policy. So it's not that she's necessarily saying, I'm coming at this from an outsider's perspective as much as I am bringing with me my experience as a person who's not from Massachusetts, who uh, is a woman of color, who is a survivor of sexual assault. So uh, the issues of identity and experience were always sort of integral to her to her political career in a way. So I think that this is not really a departure from that. Um, I do think that, yes, it, you kind of you kind of miss the point in general when you put her on the same level of uh, political newcomer status as as the other members of, of this group of four. But speaking of establishment and non-establishment people, a lot of folks are running for president and a bunch of them have their eyes on New Hampshire right now. So, Steve, we actually have some polling on that. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple a couple polling updates to, to quickly run through. There's been the first rounds of polling in New Hampshire since the presidential debates. And what we're seeing there is Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris are actually doing quite well. So now there's basically a second tier um, and closing in on actually just being one tier with the top four candidates. Uh, Joe Biden is still in first place in New Hampshire, like he's been in most other places. But now you've got Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, and Kamala Harris all sort of vying to be in that second tier. That's also what we saw out in California, uh, where we also had some polling just released. Um, There, too, we're seeing um, Harris, Sanders, Warren, Biden all sort of competing for that top spot. And depending on the poll that you look at in either state, you know, Harris might be up a little bit or Warren might be up a little bit. But that basically is what the first tier, the first slash first and second tier is looking like at the moment. And if we look at polling as a way to kind of figure out how voters are making up their minds week over week about what candidates are kind of appealing to them, how are you reading this? How are you reading sort of the drop in Biden's projected sort of inevitable front runner status and then kind of the surges, which Warren's been doing kind of in a slow and steady way? Sanders has always kind of been up there, but then Harris is now clearly up in the top four. So what is that telling you about what the 
these candidates are doing. Yeah, I think what it tells us is that is that voters just don't know yet, that there's a lot of voters who are still open to a number of different candidates. It wouldn't actually surprise me, even with that first and second tier that we just rattled off, if one of the other ones, you know, appears in that top top group or even one of the other ones wins. Um, you know, we can say that in the past, you know, this top set is is where the winner usually comes from. Um, but but not always. You know, we still may see one of the other candidates sort of make a surge. The thing I'd take away from it is that there are still a lot of open minds, a long way to go, and that primaries are a place where voters, you know, take a while to make up their mind. On the other polling story that will be out uh, tomorrow or today, if you're listening to this on Thursday, is that there's these 50 state gubernatorial polls that are coming that's coming out today. Uh, Morning Consult, the, the organization that does these giant polls of tens or hundreds of thousands of interviews all across the country, and then ranks governors and senators by their approval ratings, will be out on Thursday. The thing that I would look at there is how's Charlie Baker doing? You know, for a long time, the question has been what if any of the things that have happened and state government will affect his ratings in either direction. Um, and even as initially as the MBTA was starting to starting on this most recent series of problems that it's had, Baker was still up around 70. So now that that's been simmering on for a few weeks, you know, is he still at 70 or, or have voters started to you know, reconsider whether or not they think he's doing a good job? We'll keep an eye on that, uh, slash we will have already kept an eye on that, and uh, we will follow back up with that later. Remember, we're not even at the second Democratic debate yet, too, when it comes to the actual national field as well. So, boy, there's plenty of time for uh, someone to take a swing at someone else on the stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just uh, just people are listening. Voters are tuned in. Voters are engaged, you know. And I find that encouraging. It's, it's not it's – not, as I guess this is sort of a truism, but it's not as early as it used to be, which will always <laughs> be true in life. Um, but seriously, like we are starting to get to the period, and particularly after Labor Day, where the New Hampshire primary is pretty soon, and Iowa's pretty soon. You know, so for a long time, the thing people were saying was, "Oh, it's early; it's all name ID." That's starting to be less true. Um, so, just another thing to keep in mind. All right, and so that kind of brings us to what we're doing here today. The perennial question: Does the, does life have meaning? <laughs> is the question we put in here. <laughs> What are we doing in life? Why are we here? In the script notes, it literally is like, what is the point of all of this? Well, the point of some of it is immigration. The point today is immigration. The point today is immigration. And so we're very pleased to have Sarang Sekhavad, who's the federal policy director at the Massachusetts Immigrant and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, come talk to us about sort of the immigration moves that we're seeing right now. And then after that, the MBTA is not the only transportation problem that the that the state of Massachusetts government is facing right now. The RMV is also having some serious problems. And for that, we have many-time guest of the pod, Chris Lazinski of Statehouse News, to talk to us. So let's do it. All right, let's go. Throughout his term as president, Trump has been working pretty hard to scare the living daylights out of immigrants. The Supreme Court won't let the administration put a citizenship question on the census, so Trump issued an executive order calling on the Census Bureau to gather citizenship data using administrative records. Then planned widespread ICE raids didn't really materialize, but that threat still hangs out there. And most recently, the administration said Monday it will end all asylum protections for most migrants who arrive at the U.S.-Mexico border. So we're going to talk about these moves with Sarang Sekhavat, federal policy director at the Massachusetts Immigration and Refugee Advocacy Coalition, or MIRA. Sarong, thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's start at the macro level right now. What message are the Trump administration's policies sending to immigrants and asylum seekers? Um, from the very beginning of this administration, it was be scared. 
It was be terrified. It was don't feel comfortable in your homes. Don't feel comfortable at work. Don't feel comfortable taking your kids to school. Don't feel comfortable grocery shopping. Don't feel comfortable going to the doctor's office. It was just uh, you should be living in a constant state of fear. From the outside, this looks basically like just do anything and everything to decrease the number of people coming to the U.S. pretty much via any means necessary. Is that a fair way to look at it, or is there something more specific about the way the Trump administration is going about this? Um, I would say it's, I think you're absolutely right in saying that's about cutting the number of people coming here. Um, These are certainly not the only moves this administration has talked about. You know, we often hear folks saying, well, no, no, this administration is just talking about undocumented immigration. That's not true. Um, They're trying to make it harder for families to uh, reunite here. Folks, you know, making it harder for folks to get green cards. Um, Certainly, um, you know, the issues we've had with refugees and asylees. Um, I think that Speaker Pelosi was right that this is about make America white again. So talk about some of the ways that uh, that's happening, because, you know, the sort of headlines are all about, you know, what's exact, what's going on at the border and the detention facilities that are built there. But there's a lot of other things happening, mm-hmm. a lot of other people uh, with all different types of refugee status, immigration status and so forth that are being impacted. So I wonder if you draw out some of the other stories that people are experiencing right now. Yeah. And I would say the big one right now is um, around the public charge issue. Um, for folks who aren't familiar, this uh, it's a, an analysis done when folks get their green card. Uh, And it's basically based on household income, and they're trying to double that level. So they're basically saying, if you're a family member, we're going to make it as difficult as possible for you to get a green card. So what's the actual impact of that policy? Mm -hmm. Who is this affecting and what's being done to counteract it? It's affecting working families is who it's affecting. Um, So, you know, for example, if I were to petition for my spouse to come here, um, and, you know, let's say I have a family of four and I'm making less than $60,000 a year, wouldn't be able to bring any family members over. Uh, and that's, this is exactly what they're, they're um, you know, the goal is to cut immigration. You know, they've been saying they want to switch to a merit-based system. Congress has rejected that. And this is one of the ways they're trying to go about doing that. And how about uh, another one we heard about in Boston over the last year or so was temporary protective status. Mm-hmm. What's the current situation with with people with that status here in Boston? Um, so temporary protected status, uh, first off, it's a protection for folks who are uh, who come from countries who are going through some kind of disaster, natural disaster, ar- ongoing armed conflict. Um, and this administration has been trying to say that, OK, we're going to end TPS for a lot of folks um, even though the State Department is saying, no, no, the situation in these countries is still horrible and people should not be sent back to these countries. Right now, uh, courts have held it open until at least the beginning of next year. And we'll see, you know, in the fall uh, if that gets extended even more. Mm-hmm. And actually, another thing that is looking like it's just going to enter the courts is actually um, the Trump administration's move to limit uh, asylum seekers' options mm-hmm. as far as actually applying for asylum. Uh, the ACLU announced this afternoon that it will be suing to to halt that order. So right. break down for us a bit of what this move is that the Trump administration is trying to put into effect for Central American asylum seekers. Mm-hmm. Basically, what they're saying is if you traveled through a third country to get to the U.S., you're not eligible for asylum here in the U.S. Um, We're seeing a lot of folks coming from the Northern Triangle, from Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, 
who've been coming to the U.S. seeking protection. They're basically, the administration's basically saying, no, no, you should have sought protection in Mexico. Problem is Mexico doesn't have um, a very good asylum system. Um, there have been a lot of reports about how poor their asylum system is. Uh, they're already overburdened as it is as well. And frankly, the situation there isn't safe for these folks. So then the next thing that happened was that they said Guatemala was was potentially where some of these asylum seekers should end up. Is that right? Well, they're saying any country you travel through. So even if you're traveling, you know, through one of the other northern triangle countries to get to Mexico, they're saying, well, you should have sought asylum there. Um, mm. So, yeah, they're basically saying we don't care. But the situation in these countries isn't really such that they're equipped to take on, you know, the kinds of asylum seekers that you know, are trying to get to the United States. Right. It? They're not equipped to take it on. And there's, you know, it's situations where these people are still very vulnerable to uh, abuse, to persecution. Um, it's just not a safe situation. And in many cases, it's actually people from Guatemala trying to get right. to the United States to seek asylum. Absolutely. Yeah. How is that playing out over here? It can often seem, even though these stories are kind of at the top of our news feeds, at the same time, Massachusetts feels a very long way away from the U.S.-Mexico border. What are you seeing immigrants dealing with right here? And um, should they also, are they also dealing with concerns coming out of the Trump administration's asylum policies? Yes, yeah, certainly they are. We have a large uh, population from Central America here in Massachusetts, particularly from El Salvador and Honduras uh, and Guatemala, actually, from all three of those nations. And, you know, a lot of them have family members who are trying to come up here. Uh, and so we're seeing a lot of concerns from those folks uh, saying, well, what's going to happen to my child? What's going to happen to my brother, my sister, my spouse? Um, are they going to be forced to live in some place that their life is endangered? Right. And then, of course, once they're actually here, that brings us to the question of the pretty well-publicized idea of mass ice raids that we were looking at last weekend. Boston, of course, in Massachusetts was not on the very well-publicized list of cities that were kind of gearing up to target uh, to be targeted for that. So what was Mira doing to try and address that kind of fear about ice raids, even though it wasn't geared at Massachusetts? And what actually happened? Uh, so in terms of what we and a number of other groups were doing, uh, not just here, but all around the country, was sort of ramping up things we had already been doing, really, which is making sure that folks understand what their rights are uh, when encountering ICE and um, to make sure they have access to what we call family preparedness packets. The idea being if, if a parent is deported or detained or deported, well, we want to make sure the child is taken care of. Um, so that's really what was being done, uh, like I said, here and all around the country. In terms of what we saw, we didn't see much of anything. Uh, there's, some, there's a lot of questions about did anything really happen. My uh, instinct is to say that they kind of quietly put this away and didn't do anything because if they had, they would have put out press releases uh, patting themselves on the back. So let's talk about the policy implications for a second. What kinds of policies could be pursued either at the city level or at the state level that would help the immigrant communities here in Massachusetts sort of deal with the situation mm -hmm. that's going on nationally? Well, one of the big things is we have a bill at the state level called the Safe Communities Act. And the idea is to try and um, separate uh, local criminal law enforcement from federal civil law enforcement. 
Um, and the idea really is, you know, we want to make sure that people feel comfortable in encounters with local police, that if they're victims of crimes, that they feel comfortable going to the police and saying, hey, I'm a victim, or if they're witnesses. Another great thing that we actually saw happen recently was that we found we had a, a federal court decision to keep ICE out of, out of the courts, out of the state courts, which is fantastic because, again, victims and witnesses of crimes are scared of going to courts because they know that ICE might be there. And so this was a huge victory, not just for, you know, the folks we represent, but for the rule of law and for the enforcement of criminal law. Right. And so it doesn't seem like this question is going anywhere anytime soon. So thank you so much for taking the time. Sarang Sekavat, Federal Policy Director at Mira. Good to have you on. Yeah, thanks for having me. The MBTA is not the only part of the Mass Department of Transportation in the harsh glow of the spotlight right now. The Registry of Motor Vehicles is also in the news because it has not been communicating with other states about license suspensions. This sounds boring and technical, but it goes to the heart of what the RMV does, ensuring only safe drivers can legally use the roads and unsafe drivers cannot. Chris Lazinski of Statehouse News joins us to talk through what happened and where we go from here. He's the High Regent of the Registry and the Magistrate of MassDOT Reporting. Chris Lazinski, welcome back. Hi, guys. Great to be back. So let's start where we heard about all this, which was the very sad, terrible crash in New Hampshire where seven motorcyclists died. Uh, what happened that led up to this, and what does it have to do with the RMV? Right. That crash that you're talking about uh, in late June up in New Hampshire is really the, the thread that, as officials have been pulling at, has unraveled more and more of the goings-on inside the registry of motor vehicles. Uh, the driver in that crash a month earlier had been arrested in Connecticut on OUI charges and refusing a chemical test, which is supposed to automatically trigger suspension of his Massachusetts commercial driver's license. There's an electronic system that tracks this. Connecticut put notification in the electronic system and sent mail to the Massachusetts RMV saying, hey, this person refused a chemical test here. His commercial license should be suspended. Massachusetts officials never noticed that message, either electronically or in writing, took no action. And a month later, he was involved in a a crash up in New Hampshire that, as you said, tragically killed uh, seven motorcyclists. As the investigation has gone on, uh, the the internal investigation launched by RMV officials, they found that it wasn't just this one isolated case. They found that since at least March 2018, paper written notifications from other states about Massachusetts drivers who uh, incurred violations there had been piling up in mail bins in a storage room in the Quincy headquarters, uh, completely unattended for 14 months, if not longer. And as they investigated that, they decided to look back into the archives in Concord that go back to about 2011 or so and weren't entirely confident that all of those archive notices had been processed either. So we finally hit the point where they've worked through all of these old notifications and it's resulted in 1,607 additional drivers having their licenses suspended that by all accounts should have already had their licenses suspended before this entire story unfolded. So might be kind of a broad and maybe unanswerable question. How exactly did this happen? How was no one just checking these mail notices? That is, I think, the the million-dollar question that the RMV itself at least says it's still trying to to figure out. You know, the, the former registrar who was the head um, at the time of this crash, Aaron Devaney, resigned. 
Um, we've now got an interim head of the RMV, uh, Jamie Tesler. Uh, we have an audit firm coming in to do an outside review of everything. But it's not really clear exactly how this happened, other than some sort of management oversight. Um, you know, transportation officials, uh, transportation secretary Stephanie Pollock told reporters a couple weeks ago that uh, at some point at, in March 2018, for one reason or another, processing of these notifications just stopped and that it wasn't really clear whose responsibility it was amid some normal staffing turnover and that uh, for you know that stretch of time the RMV just never formally assigned someone to be in charge of that. They have changed that now. There is a, a staff person whose um, you know, job it is to stay on top of this but it, it really does as far as we can tell just look like uh, oversight on whose responsibility it was. But presumably as a part of the audit and the investigation will learn more about what the sort of hole in the process was that led to this, right? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's going to be one of the, the, the key areas that they look at is where exactly the breakdown was and what needs to change going forward to ensure that that sort of breakdown doesn't, uh, doesn't happen again. Mm -hmm. So what are some of these violations that we're talking about here? We talked a little bit about um, OUIs or refusing uh, refusing chemical tests, but what are some of these other things that should have been flagged to Massachusetts or were flagged to Massachusetts that Massachusetts didn't pick up on? Right. So the, the, these notices from other states really cover basically any kind of violation or, or driving infraction you can imagine. There were tens of thousands of them in these storage bins, and we ended up with only 1,600 drivers getting suspensions based on 2,000, you know, actually serious incidents. So some of these were as simple as running a red light, which obviously people don't run a red light if you're listening to this, but <laughs> that's not automatically going to result in your license being suspended. Um, but some of them were for, you know, driving under the influence or refusing chemical tests, really serious infractions that um, if it happened in the state that you have your license in would automatically result in you losing that license for a period of time. The problem is that there seems to be challenges with states communicating with one another over this. I mean, it's that's not to say that there's this kind of oversight where the notices get overlooked state to state, but uh, based on the picture that's been painted for us by RMV officials and by Massachusetts transportation officials, there isn't exactly a great infrastructure in place to ensure that these alerts are being shared across state lines. So what, what actions are the Baker administration taking now to be sure that this A gets fixed and B, that there's no other sort of looming issues out there like this that are, that are suddenly going to become known? Yeah, so as I mentioned a minute ago, they've, they've got a new staff person in place whose job it is to ensure that any incoming notices are dealt with properly and in a timely manner and don't get so we don't have another backlog building up um, once they've cleared out the old one, which is, is done now. We've got a, a Grant Thornton, a national auditing firm, coming in doing an internal review. And in what uh, Steph Pollock called an unprecedented step, the state is reviewing every single driver record in Massachusetts, all 5.2 million or so licenses, uh, alongside the National Driver Registry, which is an electronic database that normally gets checked when you go in to renew your license or get a new license. That only happens every five years or so, though. So if there's a violation within that time span in another state whose notice goes unnoticed, um, Basically, what they're doing is a, a top-to-bottom check of every single driver in Massachusetts alongside national records to make sure that there's no one else out there who, uh, who slipped under the radar. The question is basically as well, was this an issue of a single-person oversight? Was it just a communication issue that rippled down the chain from the top of it? Or 
are there other people that maybe dropped the ball here? I mean, what are what are they looking for? Are they just making sure that every single license is okay now, or are they still looking for a reason why this went wrong? My understanding is that there's, they're doing a much deeper dive into how exactly this came about and where the internal breakdown of the RMV was. I think that that... That in particular is why an audit firm is coming in. They've completed working through the backlog, but they're still doing an audit from a you know a national organization to really probe how exactly this came about. So, um, you know, I'm sure that we will see some additional follow-up action. I'm sure that there will be more internal reforms beyond, um, you know, the former registrar leaving because. It, it, it seems difficult to believe it's solely on one person's oversight that tens of thousands of these could go unnoticed. Um, and for what it's worth, uh, the Transportation Secretary herself, Stephanie Pollock, has been asked a couple of times now if she will remain in her position. The governor's been asked if he still has faith in her. And the answer has always been, yes, she is here to, to do the job and see this through to the end. So at least outwardly, her job seems secure for now. So it also sounds like we're going to get that rarest of birds, an actual oversight hearing on this at the State House. What should we expect? there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I couldn't even tell you off the top of my head the last time we had <laughs> a legislative oversight hearing uh, that's going to be, be next week. Um, it's going to be, you know, limited to the RMV issues uh, with lawmakers kind of asking probing questions about how exactly this came about, trying to do their own investigation in a more public way than a behind-the-scenes internal look or an audit. Um, so keep an eye out for lawmakers, you know, really eager to, to make a point about how unacceptable this is, um, highlighting everything that went wrong. All right. Well, Chris Lezinski, with all of the transportation issues we have here in the Commonwealth, I'm certain that we'll be having you on again soon. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, guys. So now we're to the point of the show where normally we would do trivia, and we will. But first, Jen has an urgent update that just couldn't wait. Jen, what's on your mind? Okay, so for the record, I was bullied into this. I was just expressing myself in the safety of the podcast chamber about the rare moment of, like, kind of raw feminism that happened on The Bachelorette this week. But... If anyone has a spare eight minutes and wants to feel a little bit better about the state of, like, millennial women asserting themselves, I would recommend watching a really promising dumping on The Bachelor that happened this week. Goodbye to Luke P. Luke P. Paul McMorrow, actually, longtime friend and fan of the pod, said that he's here for all the Luke P content. So this is, this is for you, Paul. You don't want to say anything else about it? Have fun, kids. <laughs> All right, and now it is time for trivia. So here's the question. Beacon Hill is a bit of a polling nexus. Not many people know that, but the question is, who are the two Beacon Hill public opinion polling outfits that are the pollsters for major national media outlets? Send us your answers on social media or this week only for 1,000 extra trivia points, a 10,000-word statistical essay of the historical accuracy of the polls in question. Steve will give you 10,000 points. I will take away 10,000 points if anyone sends me an essay on statistical analysis. We're going to read it out loud on the pod. I am tendering my resignation. <laughs> the rest Excellent. of this so podcast you... will just be Steve reading this polling status. So if you'd like to host the horse race, <laughs> go ahead and tweet us. No, seriously, that's all the time we have for this week. But before we go, we wanted to make a special appeal to you, our longtime listeners who are here for the political content and not the Bachelor content, we assume. That's just rude, Steve. Whichever you're here for. <laughs> go to iTunes, leave us some ratings, leave us some reviews. That helps other people find us, helps other people who might be looking for this sort of content find us, and it makes 
makes us feel good about ourselves. Uh, yeah, we, we get most of our affirmation from you <laughs> folks tweeting at us telling us that we aren't the worst. So please do that, but in public now. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, that's it. So I'm Steve Cazella, president of the Massing Polling Group. And I'm Jennifer Smith, news editor of the Dorchester Reporter. Our producer this week and every week is Libby Gormley. Thank you all for listening.